Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. This is Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have on the line Dean Baker, who is the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. He is the author of several books, including Plunder and Blunder, The Rise and Fall of the Bubble Economy, The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer, and The United States Since 1980. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, Dean, I really do appreciate it. And um, I just wanted to, first of all, uh, compliment you on – it's been a while since I've come across a really, I think, unique, original, and powerful economic idea. And I think that your analysis of republicanism is really remarkable and and I think a very significant intellectual achievement. And uh, rather than have me tell people what it's about, I was wondering if you could go through the um, the basic thesis of the, the book, The Conservative Nanny State. Sure. Um, well, first, thanks for having me on. I appreciate this. But um, the basic story, I'm trying to counter a conventional view in the United States that on the one hand, you have Republicans uh, who support leaving things to the market, and then on the other hand, Democrats, liberals, progressives, however you want to call them, who want to have the government intervene ostensibly to protect uh, poor people, moderate income people, whatever it might be. And the thesis of the book is that, in fact, what what is going on is that, in fact, both sides want the government, um, but the conservatives want the government to intervene in ways that basically rig rules, set rules, I should say, they aren't necessarily rigged, but set rules in ways that redistributes income upwards. And what I try to do is go through a number of what I consider key areas in the book where you have rules that are have the effect of distributing income upward from alternative rules. You always will need rules, but the point is you could have different rules. And just to give a few examples here, um, patents, uh, and particularly I focus on drug patents, uh, there's some different issues involved if you talk about patents with an industrial process as opposed to basically a consumer product like prescription drugs. And in the case of prescription drugs, basically the patent is the is the price that you pay. And in the United States, we don't have any regulation. Companies have basically an unregulated monopoly, and they could charge whatever they choose for for a drug that because of the patent, no one is allowed to compete with them. And as a result of that, many drugs can cost hundreds of dollars, even thousands of dollars a prescription. And this amounts to a very large redistribution from consumers to the drug companies. In the United States, we currently spend about $250 billion a year on prescription drugs. And if you got rid of the government patent monopolies, we'd probably be spending about a tenth of that, about $25 billion. So it's $225 billion a year that, in fact, is, is going from consumers to the pharmaceutical industry because of government intervention. It's about, also another way to put that, it's about one, one, uh, 1.5% of GDP. So it's, it's a good chunk of money. Um, the same vein, copyrights. Um, Bill Gates is a very wealthy man because he has a copyright on Windows, on, uh, on software. And again, it's the same sort of story. I should point out in both cases, patents and copyrights, I understand that they do serve an economic purpose, but the point is we have alternative ways to finance, in the case of patents, research and development, in the case of copyrights, creative work. So I understand very well there is an economic purpose, but we could fill that purpose through other mechanisms. Um, A third uh, way in which we have rules that end up redistributing income upwards has to do with the conduct of monetary policy. And this, in the United States, the Federal Reserve Board, of course, has control over monetary policy. And I'll ignore the current situation when there's all sorts of issues about how they've, in effect, uh, aided the banks to, to my view, at least to the detriment of the rest of the economy. 
But in more normal times, the Fed conducts its monetary policy in a way that restrains inflation, and the way in which it restrains inflation is by deliberately keeping the unemployment rate from falling below a level where workers are in a position to push up wages. So that's a case also where, again, it's a useful purpose. We want to restrain inflation. The question is, are there alternative mechanisms? And in this case, the mechanism that's chosen works to the disadvantage of particularly less educated workers, workers without college degrees. And we've done some research, myself and a friend of mine, Jared Bernstein, looking at the impact of unemployment on, on workers with different education levels, and you find that high rates of unemployment overwhelmingly reduce the wages of those with the least education. They have much less impact on, say, college-educated or certainly people with advanced degrees. So I, could, I go through the book, uh, I go through some other examples of ways in which government policy is structured to redistribute income from those at the middle and bottom to those at the top. And again, the point is that these are the rules of the game. So this is, you know, before we talk about taxes and transfer policy, this is setting rules that have this effect. And my argument in terms of, you know, both understanding the economy and also, you know, in terms of political focus is that, to my mind, I think people's attention is best placed on those rules. Are these rules the best rules? Can they be structured differently? rather than arguing over, say, tax and transfer policy, which is, of course, also important. But that's it's very hard to make people who are poor, otherwise poor, comfortable in a, in a society where basically the rules are set up for them to be poor. Right, right. And I, I'd like to jump back to some of those points, but I thought there was another fantastic point uh, in the book, which was the idea that um, uh, the Republicans are all about the free market, as they say. And a free market really is a principle. There's no such thing as a dedication to free market in, say, um, uh, capital goods or, or overseas goods versus a free market in the labor market, such as uh, in the realm of, of law and, and medicine and finance and so on. And I think the thesis, and I'll, I'm sure I'll paraphrase it badly, so please correct me where I go astray, but the thesis is that, or your thesis is something like that, Republicans are very keen on allowing goods and services to flow unimpeded uh, within a country and between countries, which is why, of course, we have all these goods from China and, and overseas and so on. And that has uh, the effect of depressing the wage demands of the lower classes. But at the same time, they are extremely protectionist, in fact, rigidly so to the point where the debate doesn't even come up around things like free market competition in the realm of law and finance and medicine. And I was wondering if you could talk about that, because I think that has a huge effect of redistributing wealth income uh, upwards, both in terms of maintaining the wages of the upper classes and in terms of lowering the prices for the things that they pay for, and of course, destroying the jobs of the lower classes. That's right. Well, so, so much of U.S. trade policy certainly has been focused on removing barriers to trade in, in, uh, in manufactured goods, and that historically had been a source of good-paying jobs for people without college degrees, for the less educated. I, I should qualify that. It's like 70% of the workforce. And the U.S. manufacturing jobs have just plummeted. Uh, the employment manufacturing has just plummeted over the last three decades. And trade is a big part, not the whole story, but certainly a very, very big part of that story. And, again, it's conscious policy. But if you turn to the highly paid professions, to medicine, to law, um, to other, other uh, highly paid professions, there's been very little effort, in fact, often just the opposite. They've often had rule changes that make it more difficult for people from other countries to come and practice those fields in the United States. And whenever I raise this, people often say, well, you don't have people who are qualified. And, of course, there's, this is kind of a classic catch-22 because no one in India is going to train to meet U.S. medical standards 
unless they have the expectation that once having achieved those standards, they can come to the United States. Mm. And this is a question of changing institutional structure, which, which we did with manufacturing. That's exactly what NAFTA was about when we basically, in, in terms of incorporating Mexico and NAFTA, it was about rewriting Mexico's laws so that U.S. corporations could feel comfortable investing in Mexico and knowing they didn't have to worry about having their problems their their factories expropriated or having the restrictions on repatriating profits and other rules that made them comfortable doing that. Now, we could have done the exact same thing with Mexico in terms of setting up rules and structures so that Mexican students could study to study U.S. law to our standards, U.S. medicine to our standards, whatever it might be. And then once they uh, met our standards, they can come and practice in the United States just as, you know, someone born in New York or, or Chicago goes to med school to practice in the United States. But there's been no interest in that at all. And again, they've actually tightened up restrictions in many ways in the 90s. I'm sorry to interrupt, so, but I would, I would also mention if, if I were faced with that argument, I would also say that you know, people say, well, we can't verify the, the skills of doctors or lawyers who are trained overseas. But of course, we can't directly or even indirectly verify whether people are maintaining occupational health and safety standards or other environmental standards or even the basic quality of the goods. We let the free market determine the quality that the consumer wants. And so if it's the same in goods and services in terms of the quality we'll accept that we can't verify, why would it not be the case with other professions where the consumer could determine the level of quality and price that he or she wanted? Well, that's exactly right. And, and again, um, you know, obviously being in the United States, we've had issues just last year about this time. There's an issue with uh, a number with um, uh, dog food imported from China. Dogs were getting sick here. So we've had many instances, some getting uh, a lot of attention, where you have had goods of poor quality that entered the United States. So there's always going to be problems of, of verifying quality. But it, none of this is insoluble. We could have, uh, you know, in the United States to become a doctor, you have to, to go through medical testing, and we have, you know, boards that do that testing. You could do the same thing with people who are trained in India or China, wherever the country might be, and they could be our people. We could, we could, there's not, you know, there's nothing, again, you have to set up the structures, but there's no reason at all we couldn't arrange to have tests conducted in these countries by actually people from the United States, people who we recognize as being capable of certifying doctors in the United States. We could have the same people conduct the test in India or Mexico or whatever country we choose. So none of this is insoluble. And to say that you know no, nothing's going to be perfect, of course, there'll be quality issues. There's no doubt about it. There's quality issues now. Um, but again, if, if our focus had been to try to facilitate trade among highly paid professionals, we could do that. Right. And it also struck me when you were talking about the legal profession that there should be no intrinsic reason why if I can call Bangladesh to get tech support for my Vista computer, uh, why I should not be able to call some uh, other land uh, to get legal advice if that's all I'm looking for. Uh, and of course, that would be a very powerful way to bring down the costs of legal advice uh, in the United States, but that uh, would be, I'm sure, completely outside the ballpark as far as what's being discussed or proposed at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, some of this will go on simply because you can't prevent it from going on, but that certainly has not been the focus of the trade deal. So again, in principle, what would not want if we actually had people who were concerned first and foremost about removing barriers, they would try and say, okay, why is it difficult for, for me and, you know, sitting here in Washington, D.C., and I'd said, okay, you know, there's smart people in India who can learn the law. What, why is it difficult for me to be able to get on the phone or get on the computer and go, here's my problem, and have someone at the other end who's qualified to, and legally able to, to answer that question? Um, but that, you know, that was 
clearly what went on with manufacturing. Right. So, and, and we don't even have to argue over that because they actually they went to major manufacturers and they said, "What is it that keeps you from setting up operations in Mexico?" They said, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna remove the barriers." Right. And in principle, that's what you'd want to do with with the highly paid professions. Yeah, and if you do that, uh, again, I'm not sure it's a conscious class warfare, but if you do that in the fields where the majority of poorer people have jobs, and you do the, almost the exact opposite in the fields where the richer people have jobs, that, that is a kind of class warfare, I think, that I think is only exacerbated by your very interesting examples, which again, I'd not heard before, and I've read a fair amount on this stuff over the years, about the relationship between Federal Reserve monetary policy uh, when, of course, we always associate that, those who are somewhat educated in this field, we always associate uh, federal policy, uh, sorry, the, the policy of the Fed with uh, manipulation of interest rates, which has big effects on uh, the, the sort of um, the Austrian theory of the boom-bust cycle, uh, and particularly uh, in terms of inflation. But I had not at all, and made the connection, and I haven't heard it elsewhere, the connection between federal policy and unemployment, particularly among the lower classes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, which was just a fascinating argument. Yeah, well, if you go through the dynamics of how how raising interest rates, you know, so if we go back, say, in the mid-'90s, the uh, sort of a classic case where the Federal Reserve Board in 1994 raised interest rates over the course of a year from uh, February 94 to February, rather than March of 95. They raised the interest rates by three full percentage points. And the logic of that was they, they had felt the unemployment rate had reached the lowest level it could without generating inflation. So they were determined to slow the economy so that you would not get a further decline in the unemployment rate. Now, in principle, or I shouldn't say in principle, but if you don't analyze things more closely, it looks like a neutral policy. It affects everyone the same. But we've done analysis. Again, I should refer to my co-author on this, Jared Bernstein, because he really did most of the work. We did analysis of who, who sees the most impact from unemployment on their wages. And we found that those who have the least education are, you, you can put either way, that when the unemployment rate falls to very low levels, they gain the most. On the other hand, when it rises, when you keep the unemployment rate from falling, they're the ones who, who get hurt the most. Whereas those who had the most education, people with college degrees, people with advanced degrees, their wages are least affected by the unemployment rate. So what in fact you're doing is saying, okay, we're going to prevent, we're going to reduce inflationary pressures, but it's going to be at the expense of the wages of those at the middle and bottom, not at the expense of those at the top. Right. And there are also elements of culture and race warfare as well, to use a, a strong metaphor, in terms of the numbers I think that you cited among blacks and Hispanics, the degree to which um, a lowering of inflation causes unemployment in that group. Those were quite terrifying and staggering statistics, I thought. That's right. As a general rule, these are kind of rules of thumb, but they, they've held reasonably well over the last uh, three, de three or four decades. The unemployment rate for blacks tends to be roughly twice the overall unemployment rate. It's a little less than that now, thankfully, because so we have a 10% overall unemployment rate, and for African Americans, it's about 15. But historically, it's been closer to 2 to 1. For Hispanics, it's typically been about 1.5 to 1. So if we're talking about raising the unemployment rate overall by one percentage point, typically one and a half for Latin America, for, for Latinos and two for blacks. And if you were to look at black teens, they really get walloped. The ratio typically been about six to one. And right now the unemployment rate for black teens nationwide is about 40%. So it's not quite six to one, but they certainly uh, feel the impact of any increase in unemployment uh, far more than other segments of the population. Right, right.
And I, just by the by, I don't, I don't recall this being mentioned in the book, but perhaps you've written about it elsewhere. I remember being quite like, – like many people, I sort of came through conservatism to, to the free market and then became increasingly disillusioned with the conservative consistency of its uh, value of the free market. Because when you talk to Republicans about the free market, of course, one of the first places you want a more free market is in democracy itself. And the amount of barriers to entry to the Libertarian Party, to the Green Party, to other third-party candidates is enormous, which is why the U.S. is one of the few countries with only two major political parties, that's the first place that you'd think would be a reasonable to open up in terms of, uh, uh, of a free market for the competition for public office. But again, the, the barriers just seem to keep getting higher rather than being lowered, which is, again, a complete rejection of any kind of free market principle as a principle. Yeah, and certainly it's been conscious policy. I mean, it's it's often stated, you know, we want to reinforce the two-party system. And, you know, my view as well, if you end up with two parties, that's fine, but it shouldn't be the government's role to say that you have two parties. And it it really is. I mean, it is explicit policy that we favor a two-party system, and there are a lot of roadblocks, I and mean, it varies a little bit state by state, because states have a lot of say in who gets on the ballot, what the rules are exactly. But I'd say pretty much everywhere it's fair to say it's certainly stacked against third parties or independents. So it's not, it's, not in, it's not an impossible barrier, but it's a really big one to overcome. Right, right. In the current healthcare debate, which I guess to some degree may be drawing to a close given what happened recently in the Senate, but in the current healthcare debate, it's, it's strange to look at culture sometimes to see what is most important. You have to look at what's not being talked about at all. And in terms of, uh, terms of controlling healthcare costs, I thought that the section that you had where you were comparing the incomes of U.S. physicians versus those, say, in Europe, and I think it was 160,000 for U.S. physicians and about 80,000 for uh, European physicians, uh, which again, for many people, would still be a pretty fair shake at the uh, money can. And the effects, I think, uh, you worked out some of the effects in terms of the, the, the price that these um, uh, inflated wages for uh, medical personnel have on, on the healthcare bill as a whole. Uh, what, would you mind talking a little bit about that? Well, sure. I mean, there's no obvious reason we should be paying so much more for our doctors than, say, people in Germany or France, countries with very comparable living standards. And certainly if you compare the pay of our auto workers, you know, they're, it's going to be pretty much the same. Um, so there's no obvious reason our doctors should be getting twice as much as doctors in those countries. And the difference, you know, what that comes to in terms of you know, cost. It's about. It comes to about 80 billion a year. So if we we could get European doctors at uh, U.S. doctors at European wages, that that would be enormous savings. 800 billion. We tend to price things over 10-year planning horizon. So that'd be 800 billion over a 10-year planning horizon. That'd be enough to fully cover the cost of extending care. Um, but this was never even discussed. Uh, you know, doctors are a very powerful lobby and. There's really uh, very little discussion of anything that, that, that might lower their wages. So, you know, that it just, makes, it just makes the hurdles much, much greater. So we're in a situation where we're looking to cover everyone. Of course, we have uh, 47 million people that aren't covered. We're trying to extend coverage. The bill doesn't cover everyone. But the cost ends up being prohibitive. And uh, the big problem, I think just about everyone agree with this, is that the bill that's likely to end up getting through will extend coverage somewhere around 30 million people, but it creates a cost structure that certainly can't be sustained over the long term. So we could probably, you know, we can cover the cost three years, four years, five years. We certainly can't continue on this trend, say, 20 years. So we're, we're going to have to come back and do something. But at the moment, um, what that something is, is not really determined. Right, right. And I think uh, the, the thesis as well that when you lower the costs of things like uh, legal advice, but even more particularly, I think, the cost of medical care, 
that is a de facto raise to the poorer classes because they have to consume health care. In fact, in some ways, the poorer classes in many ways consume more health care uh, because of a variety of environmental um, negative health, smoking and obesity and so on, all associated with the lower classes. If you can reduce the cost of going to see a doctor, let alone the cost of prescription uh, medication, that is a de facto raise in the standard of living to the poorer classes. And that, that to me, is the most tragic and, and fundamentally immoral aspect of this, that you really are hitting hardest the people who least can, can afford it for the, for the ca- sake of enriching those who already have the most money. It is really like the complete reversal of, uh, of what we consider a just redistribution of wealth, if we could consider that just. Absolutely. And also, I should point out, again, this is classic free market argument that you get exactly the sorts of distortions that economists predict you get when you have an interference with, with, with a free market. So you have cases where, you know, for example, drug companies are concealing evidence about their drugs being, in some cases, much less effective than, than they claim, in some cases even harmful, because they stand to make such huge amounts of money. So they're selling you a prescription that they're going to charge you $150, $200 for. It costs them you know, a couple dollars. So they have an enormous incentive to, to in effect, deceive people. And you know, the, if it were the case that that prescription were actually selling for, for a few dollars, well, they wouldn't have that incentive. And same with doctors. You have cases where doctors often recommend procedures where they could charge very high fees, where some cases they're not even necessary. So people go through medical procedures. Cesarean sections are performed on huge numbers of women on Medicaid, the government program, the government uh, program for poor people, because they, they know they can get the government to pay for it. Often they have less educated women, and you know they give a big bill to the program. So it's it's not only hitting them in terms of taking money away. It oftentimes means bad medicine. Right. So you're saying that the, the prevalence of um, cesarean sections is, is higher among those on Medicare than it would be among uh, richer people. That's right. Medicaid. Sorry, Medicaid. The, the program for poor people. That's right. Right. And, and, and it's just, it, it's really appalling. I mean, no one, should, no one should be undergoing surgeries, medical procedures they don't need simply so a doctor can make more money. Oh, absolutely. I guess uh, the argument, particularly in the fields of law and of medicine, are that most of the people in the government have uh, a history of law uh, in their career, to say the least. And of course, many of them are so old that the last thing they want to do is irritate doctors because they're really on the doorstep of needing them the most. So, But you're right, they are a yeah. very powerful lobby. And uh, it, it is startling when you talk about healthcare costs that the disparity in wages between American and foreign doctors, uh, let alone doctors in in the third world, who could provide, I think, great, uh, great medical advice uh, much, much more cheaply. Uh, the, the, one of the major costs, or I guess the two major costs, pharmaceuticals and doctors, is just not on the table. It's not even rejected as being on the table. It's like it doesn't exist at all. That's right. And, and you know, when you raise this, I mean, I invariably have people looking at me like I'm just being crazy, <laughs> like I'm being argumentative. And you know, as I say, I made this comment about patents. You know, I understand we need to give an incentive to, to, to finance the research, but the point is the patent system has huge problems. Now, maybe at the end of the day, you'd look at all the alternatives and you'd still come back and go, oh, that's the best we could do. But the point is that should be a very serious discussion because there's so much money at stake, and we just don't even have that discussion. And, and we do finance, I should mention, we, it's not, I'm not talking pie in the sky where I'm saying we could finance research other ways. The United States spends $30 billion a year financing biomedical research through the National Institutes of Health. 
So, so we are using other mechanisms. Now, most of that money is going for more basic research. Sometimes they actually do finance the development of drugs, clinical trials, so some of them are financed that way. But the vast majority of $30 billion is going for more basic research. But the idea that there's no other way to finance research, that's just ridiculous. So, And that, that's the debate we should be having, and it just isn't there. Right. Now, of course, the people who are into the free market, and, and I have uh, lots of, I've had lots of debates and questions around the idea of, of copyrights and patents and intellectual property as a whole. I was wondering if you could uh, spend a little time talking about that, because most people believe that uh, in the way that my car, uh, my car is property that is supposed to be protected by the state, that intellectual property is, is a similar kind of thing. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the alternatives so that people can detach intellectual property from their conception of the free market, where I think it, at the moment unjustly resides. Yeah, well, I mean, first off, just to make the most obvious point, when when we talk about you know your car, well, if if someone else uses your car, you can't use your car. Right. I mean, someone else is driving your car, you can't have. It. Whereas in the case of intellectual property, the property is out there. As many people as want, you know, if I if I write a book and put it on the web, we could have a billion people read it, and it doesn't affect my own ability to to read it all. We're talking about my ability to profit from it, which is a totally different question. So so there's not there's not the issue of intellectual property that rises with other property. We aren't talking about sort of exclusive enjoyment. We could have infinite number of people enjoying the benefit of that intellectual property. So we're simply talking about how best to finance the creation of, you know, whether it's a creative work or uh, innovation, uh, if we're talking about uh, research as with patents. Now, as I was saying before, one mechanism, you have direct funding. Now, it doesn't have to be through the government. The government could contract out, and we do that in many cases. So you could have the government, in the case of pharmaceuticals, that at times you probably want relatively long-term contracts with could be you know large companies could even have the same companies you could even have Pfizer you could even have Merck but the point would be that they're paid for their research up front so that everything that gets developed is then made put in the public domain in two ways one on the one hand the results are all public so this would you know I think lead to, to much better research much better medicine if you know Pfizer when they did clinical trials they had to put everything you know online so we could all see you know what uh, what were the results, and also more importantly, and I, I've asked doctors about this. I'm an economist, and you know they're very different procedures. Go well, you know, you know this drug worked overall, but how did it work for people who are overweight? How did it work for people who have arthritis? Mm. How did it work for people who are taking other drugs? They don't know that because it's up to Pfizer. If Pfizer did the test, you know, they'll they'll reveal whatever results they they want. They don't have to make these results public. And when they go to the the Food and Drug Administration to get their drug approved. The FDA is actually prohibited from making anything at all public other than saying we, you know, we judge based on the evidence that was presented to us that it's a safe and effective drug. I'm sorry, not- just to mention the absurdity of that, um, Pfizer as a publicly traded company has to open their books like a wide kimono to show the public down to the last dollar what they've invested, spent and made. And yet the actual – and that has very little to do with anybody's enjoyment or quality of life but where you're actually ingesting things into your body for the sake of illness, you can't get at that data. You can get all the financials, but not the actual test data, which is absurd when you think about it. That's right. That's right. And it's bad science. I mean, I just think of that, you know, the difference, you know, in economics, if I publish an article and I, you know, I supposedly show that, you know, let's say the trade agreement with Mexico increased uh, U.S. GDP by 3% or whatever it might be, 
Well, I'm expected to have that data fully available so that, you know, some of that will actually appear in the article, but if someone wants to review, did I do all my tests right? Did I make a mistake here? I'm supposed to have that data available to them, and that's the professional norm. And in, in medicine, where people's lives are at stake, it's the direct opposite. It's, you know, they, they, they just, you know, I, I had occasion once to call a medical researcher, and he was like, why are you asking for this data? And he, it was actually, then this wasn't even done by Pfizer. This was done actually on a, on a research grant from the National Institute of Health. So, so they would not make that available. So as I say, one alternative is simply direct public funding. Now, there have been a number of other uh, proposals that people put forward. Uh, you could actually have uh, the patent system as, as it exists now, but then have a buyout where the government, in effect, w would buy out the patent uh, through various mechanisms. It could be an auction mechanism. It could be uh, Australia has a system where they evaluate the usefulness of different drugs based on the, the quality of life years, uh, to the extent to which it's used and how much improves quality of life for how many years. So you could have some system like that, you know, where you buy out the patent and then it's placed in the public domain so that the drug can be sold as a generic. Um, there's some, some other methods that have been suggested, but the point is that there are alternatives, you know, in the case certainly of patents. In the case of copyrights, what I actually like, it, it's, it's something that, I, you know, I and some others came up with, is having some pool of money and pick say $100 is an arbitrary amount that each person has the right to contribute to the individual or organization of their choice to support creative artistic work and the the uh, criteria of accepting it is that all the work that you do if, if, if let's say I'm a writer and I accept money through this system well the work that I do while I'm in the system isn't copyright protected. So what, I'm free to write whatever I want, and you know, if I if people like my writing, I could presumably come back next year, and more people will give me money, and you know, I could do whatever I want. But the point is, whatever I do produce, anyone who wants to could just put it on the web, could you know, make copies of it, do whatever they choose to do. So the point is, you're you're, you're subsidized once, not twice. Right, I see. I think I understand. I mean, I'm I'm sure, like yourself, I'm I'm always skeptical about solutions that involve the government because the solutions that involve the government are always put into place as a response to all the solutions that the government has already messed up. So to me, it's like using the same dirty water to wish to wash the same dirty sink. But uh, you know that is debatable. But I, I certainly agree with you that the existing system. Uh, is is pretty exploitive, and of course, uh, wherever there is a fixed cost increase on people's income, it hits as a percentage point the the, the poorest the most. And I think you're right that the copyrights, patents, and and all of those other forms of of monopoly, and they are of course forms of monopoly, and they are state enforced monopolies, which is what people often forget. In a way that protecting my car, it's not a state enforced monopoly, um, but when you are protecting intellectual property using the power of law and the force fundamentally of imprisonment and fines, you are creating a monopoly and I mean every economy econ 101 is you know monopolies drive up costs and reduce competition that's right that's right and, and again it's uh, in the case of, uh, of drugs again I think it's particularly important just because this is uh, this is people's health their life so it's, it's a very big deal there and of course, uh, another uh, aspect is is reducing the amount of uh, paperwork and uh, interference some of which, of course, is probably legitimate in terms of safety, but which seems to have become particularly excessive since the thalidomide scare in the, scare in the 1960s. The FDA uh, hurdles that people have to overcome to get a drug to market uh, are enormous. And, and I think that that could be reduced if, as you say, there was more pressure put upon companies to open up their research 
then I think if you had a number of companies working with the same da same data, it would be very interesting to see uh, how much more quickly uh, F the FDA approval could occur. Because instead of the FDA being the bottleneck, it would be sort of like the scientific community as a whole, where there is no central place that you go to get validation, but it is a collective endeavor based upon the openness of the data. That's right. It's very likely that by the point a drug, someone is bringing a drug for formal approval, the results would already be widely known. So it, it would be basically, I shouldn't say quite a rubber stamp. You do want to make sure someone is actually reviewing the data, sure. but people would know would know the results already. And if there had been problems, that would be widely known. So so it wouldn't be likely you'd have many surprises. So if you had a, had a drug that had shown very good results, the approval process should be relatively quick and straightforward. If, there, if, if it was problematic, if there are cases where you had good results, but also people having bad, bad effects, well, then obviously it would take longer, and you'd presumably want to sort that out. And what you presumably want to have in that case is, you know, maybe in some cases the drug's appropriate, but for other people, you simply don't want to prescribe it. Right, or you could rely on competitors within the same field having a very critical review of the data coming out for a new drug that might uh, impact their own uh, ability to sell. And I think that's usually, I'm, I'm very much one for, you know, uh, uh, openness, standards, and, and self-interest for solving problems. And I think that uh, certainly if, if I came up with some drug to compete with Lipitor, those who create the Lipitor drug would be all over my data like wolfhounds trying to find problems because they would have that incentive. Yeah, and that would certainly, that would certainly be exactly what you'd want. You want people to go over it with a uh, you know, fine-tooth comb, but at the end of the day, everything's public so that if, uh, you know, if they're making stuff up, that will be caught. Right, right. And I wanted to also, uh, just if you could release the, uh, give people the information, uh, as far as I recall, your book is available uh, in PDF format for free on the web. Uh, and, you know, it, I would highly recommend buying it uh, because uh, it's something that you'll want to highlight uh, for people who are listening to this. You'll want to highlight and remember some of these arguments for when you get into political discussions with people who are very pro-free market, but only in a particular area, which is, I think, quite negative. I wonder if you could just uh, hand out the information where people can get a hold of, of both the free and the, the paid version of the book. Sure. It's uh, www.conservativenannystate.org. Again, www.conservativenannystate.org. And you could read online, you could uh, download a PDF, or you could uh, um, order the book, as I say. Uh, and uh, the price of the book is just, you know, the cost of shipping and printing. So uh, I, I don't have any, any attachment. No one's doing me a favor. In other words, people <laughs> want to buy the book. <laughs> right. And of course, that is quite appropriate to a man who is skeptical of copyright. And I certainly do applaud you for, for that consistency. How has the response to the book been? Have you received uh, much uh, counter-criticism, or has it been largely um, uh, accepted? Um, it hasn't gotten that much attention. This, too, is interesting. I had several, because um, we did try to get reviewed. It wasn't reviewed very many places. And I had uh, some places to say that they simply, because it was published in the form we did, it wasn't published by a regular publisher, because, of course, there's no money in it for a regular publisher. It wasn't, they didn't even consider it for review. Mm. Which, which, again, I can understand someone say, okay, you know, everyone, you know, saying to the New York Times, everyone obviously wants their book reviewed, the New York Times book review, but this wasn't even under consideration because it wasn't done by a regular publisher, which is sort of a remarkable statement. I mean, what, what does it mean that it wasn't done by a regular publisher? I mean, I'm sure I could have found a publisher to publish it, but on top of that, what, what is, what's a publisher? It's someone who owns a publishing house. <laughs> so, 
So it's really not much of a, you know, it's hard to see that that should be a basis for whether or not you're going to review a book. Yeah, that seems kind of old school, like a guy comes in in a dirty raincoat and a rain-soaked mattress, uh, a manuscript and says, I want you to read my book. And it's like, well, I'd rather you go through the hurdle of having an editor and a publisher. But that's not the category that you're in, of course. I mean, a respected academic and economist. So it's not like you're going to be making stuff up. And of course, if people have skepticism about the thesis, I mean, they just have to look at the, the data for the arguments, the sources for the arguments, rather than think, well, if he's jumped the hurdle of a publishing house, that gives him magical legitimacy. So I think that's a, that's a shame. And I that's why I thought that would be worth having the interview. I mean, I certainly can't uh, uh, get millions of copies out, but I can certainly get people uh, to, to, to be interested in reading it because, as I said, it's one of the, uh, the really great uh, arguments that I've, uh, I've listened to over the past little while. And, you know, again, to commend you on, on A, writing the book and, and all the research and, and work that went into it. I think, I think it's well written as well. I think that uh, you have uh, injected um, a, a, an appropriate amount of moral fervor uh, into the book, which, you know, makes it more than just dry reading, but less than like someone yelling at you from a soapbox, which I thought was a really nice balance. Uh, and uh, I certainly think that uh, the exposure of this uh, falsehood of principle uh, with the free market and republicanism hopefully can get people out of that mythological camp where they just say, well, Republicans are about the free market and the socialists, uh, Democrats are about the nanny state. And to see that it, actually, it has actually a worse form of nanny state in many ways to focus. I mean, I'm, I'm not much one for government solutions as a whole, but if we're going to have them, let's at least not have them benefiting the rich at the expense of the poor. And I think that the data as a whole that has been running through the, um, the, the stats over the last 20 years has been that you have seen, uh, I think, as your book would have predicted based on its data analysis of the 90s, particularly the Fed, you have seen a huge increase in the upper 10 or 20 percent uh, of, of people's income. And you have seen a flattening or even a mild decline, depending on how you measure it, uh, of people on the, at the poorer end. And of course, over the last uh, two and a half years or so of the recession, uh, it's only gotten worse. So I think it's a very, very timely message. And I hope that uh, uh, I hope that more people will read this book because I think it's it's a really, really worthwhile endeavor. Can't really understand the political landscape, I think, without seeing this upward suction of money that is going on among the Republicans. Yeah, no, I well, I agree with that, obviously. <laughs> well, I wouldn't expect you to disagree, but I just wanted to, to point that out. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really big on pitching stuff that I think has uh, is, is new and, and very interesting. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And uh, would you, sorry, uh, you can just give that website one more time. It was conservativenannystate.org. That's right, www.conservativenannystate.org. Okay, I will link this on the video. And thank you again so much for your time. I appreciate it. Sure, thanks a lot. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye.